pleasure to be here. Today I'd like to talk a little bit <clears throat> in recognition of the fact that the, you're starting a new center here and everyone wants the center to succeed. And so the Buddha has some teachings on success, which I'd like to talk about. Um, what's interesting about these teachings is that primarily we're aimed at success in meditation. But in the Thai tradition, they're often applied to success in any endeavor. You want to succeed at school, you want to succeed at sports, you want to succeed at setting up a Dharma center. These are some good teachings to reflect on. So I'd like to talk about these teachings in both contexts, in the context of the endeavor of setting up a center and also in the endeavor of working on your own meditation. The teachings are called the four bases for success or sometimes called the four bases for power. If you want to have a powerful Dharma center, you can keep these in mind. <clears throat> and... When you talk about them in the context of setting up a center or doing some sort of worldly activity, they make a lot of sense. In fact, they're almost so commonsensical you would imagine, wonder why they would deserve pointing out. But when we apply them to meditation, which is where the Buddha originally meant them, they seem very unusual from our Western point of view. So just keep that point in mind. The four qualities are, as I said, um, desire, persistence, intentness, really focused, being focused on what you're doing. And the third quality, which the Pali word is Vimangsa, which is sometimes translated as discrimination, sometimes translated as ingenuity. It's the active power of your mind. Um, and several years back, the New, York, uh, the New Yorker magazine ran an article. It was a study of people who are skillful in a physical sense, who've really mastered a skill. And they talked about the qualities that people across the board, and they had a, profiles of Brain surgeon up at UC Santa, San Francisco, Wayne Gretzky, Yo-Yo Ma, Michael Jordan. What do all these people have in common? And it reminded me a lot of what the Buddha had to say about success. The very first one was desire. You want to work on what you're doing. You enjoy it. You've in, the word chanda here means not only desire, but there's an element of joy, having fun in what you're doing. Um, in the cases they were they were talking about was um, especially with the 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 surgeon in San Francisco, whose name I can't remember, he found that he was having problems operating on aneurysms. So every day after work, he would go down to the rat lab and he would create aneurysms in the poor little rats and then operate on them to cure the aneurysms. And he would do this for months and months and months at a time until he, he, he got really good at it and then he applied his skills to human brains. And then for a while he began to realize that it was about time for him to stop because he had mastered the skill but he was still going down to the rat lab every night because he liked operating on rats. Um, I don't suggest that you enjoy operating on rats, but find something that you enjoy in the Dharma Center. Create an art environment where you really like being, where it's a good place to come, where people feel welcome, where you feel welcome, and you enjoy the activities that you have, you have going. And have a strong desire to make sure that the thing does go through. Because based on that comes the second quality, which is persistence, that you really stick with whatever work needs to be done, both inside and out, in setting up a center like this. The Buddha has a teaching on the four qualities that are useful in any kind of group activity to keep the group together. The first one is generosity, which means not only being generous with your material possessions, but also being generous with your time, generous with your energy, generous with your knowledge, generous with your forgiveness. And the group, group has these qualities working together the group will last for a long time. The second quality for 
having a group survive or having a group thrive <coughs> is what is the Pali actually means um, kind words, endearing words. When you talk to each other, talk nice, okay? <laughs> and that doesn't mean being sort of you know sort of you know um, flowers and incense all the time. But what it means, okay, there are going to be times in the group when there are harsh things that have to be said, when things have to be sort of settled down and there are problems when there are disagreements in the group. And in a case like this, one, you want to find the right time to say these things, the right words. Make sure that your motivation is based on goodwill rather than ill will. So that even though what you may say have, may not be all that pleasant for other people to hear, you show respect for those people in choosing the right time, the right place, the right words for what you're saying. The third quality is being truly helpful to one another. In other words, when you go, try to help someone, make sure that you're really doing something that is actually a benefit to them rather than something that you're just doing for your own self-image, that you want to be in a position where you're a helpful person but not really all that helpful to what other people really need. Pay attention to see what's really needed and provide that. The fourth quality is, what the, is consistency, which means many different things. One is that you know, you're consistent in your help Two, you're consistent in the way you treat other people. I mean, you know, the way you treat people behind their back is the same way you treat them to their face and backwards. So there's this consistency in the group. This gives rise to trust. And so if you make an effort at these things, and the effort here doesn't mean that you throw yourselves into it for the first couple months of the center and then slack off. It's a consistent sort of chipping away day by day, week by week, month by month. But it's a, a persistence that you want to develop that's going to keep the center going. So that's the quality of effort. The third quality is intentness. It's just really paying attention to what needs to be done. Giving a lot of attention, giving a lot of attention as well as being intent. I noticed when I was staying at the monastery in Thailand, um, when my teacher would, he taught half the time in Bangkok, half the time at the monastery. When he came back to the monastery, he spent the first couple of days back at the monastery walking around and checking up and seeing how things were going. Um, and for me, it was very encouraging that you know, there was somebody who cared. And so if everybody has eyes and ears, John Lee has a nice saying. He says, when you come to a place like this, you want your eyes to be as big as the center. You want your ears to be as big as the center. Notice what's going on, seeing what's lacking, and then providing for the lack. That, that element of intentness is going to be helpful in keeping the center going. Fourth quality is powers of discretion, discrimination. Discrimination here means basically seeing you know, what's going well, what's not going well, and then figure out how you can solve the problems of what's not going well and maintain what is going well all, all along the board using your ingenuity. They were talking about Wayne Gretzky and um, Yo-Yo Ma as, as being excellent examples of this. Yo-Yo Ma was one time saying that the best concert he ever gave was one time when one of the strings on his cello broke. And all of a sudden it became you know, a challenge. You know, can I still play the piece without having to fix the, the string? And he was able to do it. And he said he probably gave the best performance of his life at that point is when you rise to the occasion, you realize, okay, the ordinary answers that people have given may not work in a particular case. Where can you use your ingenuity to think up something better? So when you have these four qualities going in the center, it's both the desire and the enjoyment in the center, the persistence in keeping, keeping at the work that needs to be done, being really intent and sort of noticing what's going on all around you, and then finally using your ingenuity to take care of problems as they arise. And this is, these are, this is the formula for sex, success all across, across the board. What it also does is it develops qualities that are going to be useful in your own meditation. 
And this is where these teachings become a little bit more controversial because some of these qualities are things that we're told that are bad in meditation. Desire, bad. Effort, bad. Discriminating mind, bad. Intentness is the only one that still has good press out of the four. (laughs) So the issue is, okay, in what ways are they really bad? In what ways are they really essential? Like the element of desire. Teachers in Thailand point out over and over again, if you don't have the desire, you're not going to meditate. There's got to be an element of wanting to do the work. Um, The question is, when does the desire get in the way? And I think a useful way of looking at this is thinking of the meditation in terms of causes and results. We all want the results. We want the causes to be taken care of as fast as possible. That's going to get in the way. What you want to do is to learn how you focus your desire on getting the causes right, and the results will come of their own. For instance, we all come and we want peace of mind. Now, if you sit there thinking peace of mind, peace of mind, peace of mind, it doesn't come. No matter how much you call it, it just doesn't listen. What you've got to do is say, okay, focus on the breath. Your mind wanders off, focus on the breath. Mind wanders off again, focus on the breath. You keep coming back, working on the cause of being mindful of what your, your, your theme is, if it happens to be the breath. And after a while, the mind will begin to stay more and more with the breath, and then it'll have a chance to calm down. So you focus on the cause, which is this sort of bringing things back, bringing things back, bringing things back. That ultimately leads to the result that you're looking for, which is calm, insight, peace of mind. Um, an analogy I like to use with regard to this teaching is um, of going to a mountain on the horizon. If you say there's you know, a mountain over there on the... What range is that called? Santa the Santa Cruz Mountain. Suppose you want to go up there to Russian Ridge. You know, if you're looking at Russian Ridge all the time as you drive up, what's going to happen? going to drive off the road or drive into somebody. But if you say, okay, this is the road that leads to Russian Ridge, okay, you go following the road and it gets you up there. So you have the desire to stick with the road, focus on the road, and the road will lead you there. So if you can learn how to focus your desire in the proper way, then it actually becomes a help to your meditation rather than a hindrance. And I think it's good, it's good to keep conscious of where your desires are. So many times we're taught, well, the desire is a bad thing in meditation, so you try to hide it. And then you start denying that's, that the desire is there. And then it goes underground, and then you can't really see it for what it is. If you're very clear with yourself, okay, there is a desire here. If there weren't the desire, we wouldn't be here right now. We'd be off, who knows, who knows where. That we, want, we want to get results out of the practice. So be very clear about that fact, and then learn how to use that desire in a way that's actually helpful and rather than a hindrance. The same goes with the quality of persistence. It has to be kind of a step-by-step-by-step day after day after day kind of effort. You don't want to just throw yourself into the meditation and then spend the next several weeks recovering. <laughs> you want to be able to stick at it. So you've got to find a level of effort that's prop- appropriate for you. There's a very famous passage in the canon where uh, a monk who was very tenderly brought up, in fact, the, the story goes that he was so wealthy as a child that... Um, hair started growing on the soles of his feet. <laughs> In fact, the king wanted to see this one time. Whoever heard of someone with hair on the soles of their feet? This is something really amazing. And so finally he decides he wants to become a monk. And so you can imagine but someone who is so tender, he goes out and he does walking meditation on the bare ground and his feet get all bloody. And he's ready to give up. So the Buddha comes to see him and says, um, when you were a lay person, did you ever play the lute? And your man said he did. And so what happened when the string was too tight? Of course, it would snap. When the string was too loose, it wouldn't make a good sound. You had to tune it so it was just right. And then you would tra- tune all the other strings to that main string. 
said in the same way in your practice, you have to find what kind of what level of persistence, what level of effort you can keep going. Tune your tune your persistence to that, and then tune the rest of your practice to that level of persistence. Now, this doesn't mean having a half-assed effort all the time or going halfway all the time. What it means is finding the appropriate level of effort at any one particular time. Sometimes you'll find that things come up in your mind, and the only effort you need to do, say, say there are negative things in the mind, the only effort you need to apply is just looking at them, and they go away. Other times you really have to do battle, you have to keep coming back, coming back, coming back. So you tune your effort both to your own abilities and to the, you know, what's needed at that particular time. So it's an appropriate effort for what you're doing. The quality of intentness doesn't mean need that much explanation. You want to be really focused and be very observant about what's going on in your meditation. When I stayed with John Fuang, my teacher in Thailand, that was one of the words he used over and over again more than any other word in his, medita- in his meditation instruction was be observant. Watch what you're doing. Be very sensitive to what's going on. You can't regard meditation as something you, you read a recipe and then you just do the recipe and it's going to come out you know, enlightened. It's kind of the, the craft process cheese approach to meditation. You just stuck whatever gets stuck into the, into the into the beginning of the machine. The machine will take care of everything. It will come out as processed cheese at the end. You don't want processed cheese in your meditation. Insight comes from sensitivity, your own sensitivity, your own ability to observe what's going on in your mind, and specifically learning how to see things in terms of cause and effect. When you do, you'll notice that okay, sometimes the things you're doing in the meditation are not working in which case you have to learn how to discriminate between, between what's working and what's not working. And secondly, if something is not working, what are you going to do to make a difference? And this is where your ingenuity has to come in, in order thinking up other approaches. Um, an example from the tradition I was trained in was Ajahn Lee, who was my teacher's teacher, had been working on breath meditation for many years. And in the last 10 years of his life, he went up and decided to spend a rains retreat away from people up in the northern part of Thailand, in the mountains. And the place he went to was three days' walk away from everybody else. And, and when he arrived there, he began to realize he was having heart problems. In fact, he had a heart attack while he was up there. Now, what would you do if you were three days' walk away from the nearest road, with only some hill tribes people around, and one other very unintelligent monk <laughs> staying with you? What would you do? John Lee decided the only thing he could do was to focus in on his breath. And as he worked with the breath, he found various ways of dealing with the breath energy in the body that weren't in any of the textbooks. But he found that it was a very effective way, one, of getting the mind into good, strong states of concentration, and two, also having a healing effect on the body. And he came out of that experience. At the end of the rains retreat, he was able to walk out of the mountains, come back down, and write down what the method they had learned, which is put his method to in that book, Keeping the Breath in Mind. So this is an important part of the meditation, is that you, when you run up against problems, you can't always go right into the teacher and say, look, you know, I'm having this problem, that problem. You've got to step back and look at what, what the op- opportunities are, what the alternatives are, and think a little bit outside of the box. My teacher used to say that you know, he, he would give people the basic principles in meditation and hope that they would use their ingenuity. Um, that, that was the second term he would use. And often not was use your imagination, use your ingenuity when you run up against something. As he said, it was. Yep, sometimes he felt like they were. <laughs> he called us. He said his students sometimes were like little puppies. They go out and they go to the bathroom, and they come running back to their mother to lick them off. 
And he says, sometimes the teacher wants you to be able to think on your own because you're going to have to develop these qualities of your own ingenuity to deal with the problem. Because there's many times you'll be meditating at home, meditating off someplace else, and there's nobody to run to. <coughs> but as you use this ability to ask questions, okay, what's going on here? What is wrong? What could I change about what I'm doing? It gives you a whole new perspective on your mind and on the issues that are going, going on in your mind. And if you use this ability to discriminate between what's working and what's not working and your ingenuity in dealing with the problems as they arise, this, is, this combined with the desire to practice, persistence in the practice, being really intent on what's going on, these are the things that bring success in meditation. Now, oftentimes we don't like to hear those words. We think in, in the realm of meditation we should be allowed to do as we like and not worry about getting to any goal. Again, this is where the element of desire comes in. There has to be that sense of goal there. And <clears throat> on short-term meditation retreats, it's often good not to think about goals because that gets you all screwed up. You know, you have, you have your two-week vacation. You want to at least stream entry by the end of the two weeks or you want at least the third jhana. You're going to get yourself all screwed up. But if you say, okay, I'm just going to go do the steps and whatever comes out, at least I'll know that I've done my best because meditation is a more organic process in the sense that you're, it's your mind that has to grow and all the various qualities in your mind have to sort of grow together. And whether they reach the, the goal that you want in that particular time frame is not important. But in terms of your long-term practice, you really do need to have a sense of goals. You know, what are you here for? Why, do you, why are you meditating? Why do you have the Dharma Center? You want to be really clear on that so that when issues come up that might pull you off to the side of the practice or pull the Dharma Center off to some sort of side, you want to be able to pull it back together. So, you know, the, this is the goal we have in mind. This is what we want out of the center. And as you have that sense of long-term goal and a mature attitude towards your goals, both in terms of your own personal practice and what you would like to see this place offer for yourself and other people, then you're bound to succeed. So those are my thoughts for the day. Are there any questions? Okay. That's one take. That's not the Theravada take. Okay, well. <laughs> <laughs> it's not my personal take. <laughs> so, so supposedly we start you know, something happened and now our heart is all we discover ourselves. So ultimately let's say we get that. Mm-hmm. We clean our hearts and uh, mm-hmm. we got How do we know the same thing will happen again? Well, that's the whole problem of the Buddha nature theory. If you have the theory, okay, we all started out pure and somehow it got, got defiled, then purity is always, in the, is always in a position of being defiled again, right? Well, the Buddha, in the original teachings, the Buddha never taught that. There is no teaching of Buddha nature, there is no teaching of original purity. He says, you know, the, the point he makes is that you can't find the beginning point of ignorance in the past. He says, if you try to trace things back to the past, any theory about where we're coming from is going to get you screwed up. 
He says, focus on the present moment. What's going on in the present moment? Where are you causing yourself unnecessary suffering? Where are you causing unnecessary suffering for the people around you? Stop. It's like when you're doing psychoanalysis. There are two ways of dealing with its neurotic patterns that you're having right now. One is to try to trace them back to the past. And the other is try to sort of analyze what's going on in the present moment so you can see what you're doing is not necessary and that it's harmful. And you can stop. And the second one is the Buddha's approach. Sort of take, a, take apart the process in the present moment. And then, then he says, when you reach purity, because he says, you can, nothing comes out of purity. Everything comes out of ignorance. Once you hit purity, it doesn't produce anything, it's never changed. It's something separate. So it's, it's a totally different take. Buddha nature is a Chinese idea. <laughs> it's not in the original teachings. Anything else? Yes? Buddha says you can't find the beginning point of ignorance. He doesn't say that there wasn't one. It's one of those questions. If you try chasing, tracing things back, you just never get anywhere. And so in all of his teachings, he says, don't focus back there, focus right here. The question of where these things came from, he says, just doesn't lead anywhere. But when you, when you take apart the present moment and you finally break through to this what he calls a deathless. Okay, one, you realize that, that this deathless is totally unrelated to anything that you've, that's been created in your life. But then it's always been there. But it's, it's something totally separate. Things don't, things don't come out of that. Mm -hmm. But we've, we haven't paid it any attention. And so basically what you want to do is sort of bring an end to this process of creating things. And you find that once, you, once that's brought an end to it, then there, there's nothing to create anything anymore. No conditions to keep, the, to keep the cycle going. Yes? Can you talk a little bit more about the desire and goals? It sounded sort of like process being process-oriented as opposed to goal-oriented. Yeah, you need the long-term goals to get your, keep your direction, direction straight. But as I said, if you're focusing all the time on, on the goal, the goal, the goal, the goal, you neglect the process. Or if you're sitting there, well, I'll just, I'll just do this until the goal comes down like a, like a hawk and just kind of swoops down and catches me, takes me off. That doesn't work either. It's real, okay, this process I'm doing will take me to a spot. But if I keep worrying about the goal all the time. I neglect the process. It's a simple cause and effect kind of thing. I think the main problem we have in the West is impatience, more than anything else. Impatience. Impatience. That we want it right now. And if we can't get it right now, well, let's t tell me something that I can get right now, because I want what I want right now. <laughs> and, and it's the ability to live with a long-term goal. And the Buddha says there is a kind of sorrow that comes knowing that you've got this goal that you haven't attained, or this kind of a. But you don't let it get you don't let it get you depressed. You say, okay, if there's only the only one way I can get a, beyond this sorrow is to actually do the 
do the steps that are needed to take me there. And be very patient. Learn how to sort of encourage yourself along the way. And that's, that's the ability that's needed to encourage yourself along the way. We, many times we've forgotten. That's the process orientation. That's what the process is. I, I learned this many times in Thailand because the monastery I was staying didn't have all the modern conveniences that we have nowadays. You want to sharpen a knife, it takes three hours, all right? And you're given a big stone and you're given the big knife and some water and you just sit there. And if you get really impatient to get it done, you've ruined the knife. So you have to be very careful on applying just the right amount of pressure and keeping it steady and keeping it going. Knowing that you do want a sharp knife, but if you get let the sharp, you know, the, the goal get in the way of what you're doing. You ruin it. So you have to learn how to live with long-term processes. And the mind, once you used to get used to dealing with long-term processes like this, you find that the mind has a way of sort of encouraging itself, keeping it going, so that it doesn't get tied up with the fact, hey, I'm not where I want to be yet. The, the Buddha said that the sorrow of having a goal that you haven't attained is much better than the sorrow of not having any goals. <laughs> yes. There's, there's a piece in there about planning, mm-hmm. which I'm not quite sure how that fits in the Buddhist picture. Mm-hmm. Goal, yes. Process, yes. But there also needs to be some kind of plan about how I'm going to reach the goal. And then that gets me into being out there rather than being here. Well, fortunately, the process is, is relatively simple. And the Four Noble Truths is a very basic way of looking at, your, looking at your practice. Okay, where am I causing unnecessary suffering right now? What's the unnecessary suffering that I'm sensitive to? You focus on that. I was thinking more, you were talking at the beginning about for a center like this. Mm-hmm. There are many things you would like to have happen here. Many, mm-hmm. many things already have happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And all of that takes some form of planning. Okay, but a lot of it has to be the sort of the step by step, by step kind of process. Because many times you'll find that when you get to two years down the road from here, your picture of what's possible based on what you've done is going to be different from what your, your sort of your master plan right now. And if you have a, have a general sense of your direction, you want a community here of people who are meditating, studying the Dharma, and sort of work, you work on that step by step. Okay, let's, let's meditate. <laughs> That's the best way to get a community that's good for meditating. I hate to tell a story about Gil. <laughs> but he asked me one time what, what my goal for the monastery down in San Diego was. You know, when I leave and when I finally have to, you know, when I die. I said, I would like to leave behind a place that's really good to meditate. And he said, well, in that case, you've, started, you've got to start getting out newsletters and brochures and planning retreats. And I said, no, no, Gil, I said, a place good to meditate. Not well known, large, just a good place, okay? <laughs> so, the best place to get a good place to meditate is to meditate. And then you'll see what needs to be done. Yes? Um, with respect to your meditation practice, are there a particular set of suggested goals At the very beginning, you want to make sure that you know you've. Okay, you say you want to make a goal of being able to follow the five precepts. Because that develops, when it's a long-term process, so you get used to living on a long-term process. 
it develops qualities of mindfulness and alertness. You've got to keep your precepts in mind, and you're mindful about when you're overstepping them. You may decide that taking all five precepts on at once is a little bit too much in terms of the, the element of effort, so you focus on the important one, which is the one against lying. Focus on that one first, and then the other ones sort of build on top of that. And as you're doing that, the second goal is uh, working with your mind and when you're meditating, whether it's on the level of creating stillness in the mind or gaining insight, we tend to think of those as two different, radically different qualities, and they're not. And the more still the mind is, the more you clearly you see things. When you see things clearly to the point of being able to let go of unskillful habits, the mind gets more still. So the two kind of help each other along. And so just look in your meditation, okay, what's keeping the mind from settling down? Work on that immediately. And then once the mind has settled down, <clears throat> allow it to stay there for a while. Don't be in too great a hurry to jump to the next level. And finally you get sensitive, okay, is there still some level of unstillness in this stillness that I have? As your sensitivity develops, you'll see it, and then you can work on that. So it is kind of an organic process. Again, if you have too, <clears throat> too many set ideas, okay, okay, hey, I hit the first jhana, next thing I've got to do is hit the second jhana. The Buddha has, an, has a sutta on the, the foolish, inexperienced cow, where this, there's a cow on one hillside. She's got a meadow and she's got some water. She's doing okay. You know? And she looks across the hill and there's another meadow over there. And she says, I wonder what the grass is like over there. I wonder what the water is like over there. And the sutta says, because she's foolish and inexperienced, she goes down the hill and gets tangled up in the rocks at the bottom of the hill. And so she gets so she can't get over to the other side and she can't get back. And so the message is, stay in your meadow, okay? And the new grass will grow. <laughs> so as, you, as long as you stay right there and watch what's going on in terms of what you're doing that's causing stress that you can see, okay? just that process right there is enough to take you all the way through. Is that it? Should we break for lunch? Thank you. Thank you.